Section five of The Soul of London by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two continued. The effect in London is just as much one of jumble and the incongruous, but there is nothing of the sinister. If it is not an impression of pure happiness, it certainly implies a contagious cheerfulness and good humour. In these parts you hardly see a discontented face, and never a morbid one. Right into the very bottom of the Waterloo Road and nearly up to Westminster Bridge, old villas, new houses and new shops lie side by side or stare at one another. They are all mixed together. It is not possible to get any zones to synchronise. It is not possible to say, early Georgian London had reached here, middle Victorian here, the railways produced this district, the short stages this. They are dropped down in terraces anywhere, nearer Whitehall or further away. But the general effect is a pleasant one. It is as if the poorer classes had come into the cast-off clothes of the comfortable, and found them roomy, easy and luxurious. I suppose the speculative builder accounts for this. He found, in one generation or the other, bits of waste ground, or rows of smaller buildings. He ran up at one time the fine old houses, at another the terracotta shops. Probably in each case he was miscalled by the old residents. So does the jerry-built terrace of the late George's become the pathetic old region of today. So, no doubt, the new shops will, to our children's children, be tenderly reminiscent, quaint and full of old memories. So does time assuage all temporal griefs. The speculative builder's lamentable failures may be traced too. There is an odd terrace in one part of a long main road into London. It contains four immense, thin-walled, pretentious stucco houses, with middle Victorian pinnacles, gables and extravagances. It breaks off in uncompleted doors, uncompleted foundations, and a plot of grimy wasteland. Other shops begin again. This place always piques my curiosity. I seem to trace in it a bold speculations falling to pieces, getting the nickname Blank's Folly, growing begrimed, being forgotten. These great roads into London are pleasant enough. Inspiring, too, and impressive when they are full of people. In the times when one is in the mood, when one is looking, and at such times the top of the horse-drawn tram is the best of all vehicles, one sees glimpses of so many things that it is like sitting before an unending stage procession, only more actual, more pathetic, and much more inspiring. The other year I came in by way of the Kennington Road, along Newington Butts, past the Elephant, up London Road our eyes had grown accustomed to a gloom in the upper air. The obelisk milestone in St. George's Circus appeared, pallid under its lamps, pale and grimy, Georgian, grim and surprising. The tall wedge of the eye-hospital was a deep black among liquid shadows deeper still. All the mysterious and gloomy London of ancient names and ancient lives seemed converging out of those shadows into that dark space. And suddenly, at a swinging round of the tram, there was a long trail of quivering lamps, pink, red and white, low down on the ground, vanishing in the distance of Waterloo Road. The road was up for putting down the conduits of the electric system, and these lights guarded the trenches. But there had been no announcement, no expectation of a city rejoicing with illuminations, 
it was the most gracious of surprises and an unforgettable thing but that is london yet these great roads are oppressive when they are empty to enter london in a faint saffron dawn along with the market wagons is to be not awed by an immense humanity but disturbed by entering what seems some realm of the half supernatural you are coming to covent garden you sit at the shaft tail beside the driver he is half invisible in the night taciturn and half asleep at last the street lamps appear at first solitary and brave in the dark then more frequent and growing palely unnatural before the dawn the colours of the large horses begin to show and the innumerable pulls up with their signposts and the yellow paint of the house facings or you may lie softly enough high up on a bed of cabbages there used to be at the back of the camden town road a little haymarket that i knew well it may be there still for all i know and it was far better to come in on top of the hay half under the tarpaulin with the sweet scent the warmth and the half dozing the pure air of the early dawn it is purest of all on a monday because fewer chimneys have been smoking one saw the solitary streets for immense distances with all along the roadways little heaps that turned out to be cats crouching over garbage or courting they are the sign visual of london at the dawn with an air of mystery as of an unsuspected population revealed unawares but all the empty streets giving out echoes that one never hears during the day all the vacant blinds the sinister the jocular the lugubriously inquiring or the lamentable expressions that windows give to houses asleep all the unsmoking chimneys the pale skies and the thought of all these countless thousands lying invisible with their souls in sleep parted from their bodies all these things give an effect in its silence immense stealthy and overpowering one coffee-stall grey hooded and with a pale lamp does not break the spell nor twenty one house of call nor a hundred even the shouts of covent garden or the footsteps on the cobbles and the undertones of the loafers before the tiny black brick houses of the little haymarket seem thin and ghostly without the immense and kindly ground base of london awake and indeed all the dawn sounds of london have that quality of thinness the hoot of locomotives the thunder peals of shunting trucks the clatter of cab-horse hoofs the rhythmical stepping of one's own four great horses even the immensely loud awakening of the london birds seems small and circumscribed the railways seem to make london commence where the chimney-pots begin to be in forests in comparison with the thames they are at the other end of the scale the river is a natural way roads wind upon hills descend valleys in zigzags make nowadays detours that were once necessary in order to strike fords or to convenience great houses or solitary hamlets railroads tunnel through hills fill up valleys with embankments and crash through the town itself boring straight ways into the heart of it with a fine contempt for natural obstacles footnote canals have something of this quality and in them it is of older date brindley carried the bridgewater canal over a river by means of an iron bridge in the days when men still wore tie-wigs and dress-swords i do not touch on this kind of road into london because it is no longer a very usual one 
at one time it was common enough. I remember to have read an account in verse, by a starving and permanently obscure eighteenth-century poet, of a voyage he made from London to Nottingham and back, with his entire family, a wife and six children. He was seeking a patron, but finding none he printed this pamphlet and hawked it through the streets. I am familiar enough with several canals. When I was a boy I persuaded a bargee to take me through the tunnel that goes under the Edgware Road and reappears near Regent's Park. The darkness, the plash of waters, the faint stars of light at either end, combined to make a deep impression on me. The bargee and his mate pushed themselves and the barge along by pressing their bare feet against the walls of the tunnel. End of footnote. If we could see the underlying fineness of these things, the fineness that shall be on the surface when these embankments are as venerable as to-day the wall of Hadrian, it might make our world more inspiring. There are deep cuttings, coming into London, where brick walls, fifty feet high, are black, sombre and austere. You are in a kind of underworld, savagely impressive enough. The square fronts of houses peep down on you as you run beneath, constant footbridges overhead give to the thin light of day a constant shudder and quiver. We, who are not made for strong impressions, are ourselves inclined to shudder. Or one may grow bewildered to the point of losing hold of one's identity, amid the crash and charge of goods trucks. There are great open spaces all over London where the transfers are made line to line. At night they are most active. Electric lights glare and seem to drop sparks from very high in the air, blue and mistily. Rails glimmer here and there underfoot like marsh pools of water. Hooded trucks seem to wander alone and to charge each other all in the black distances. One might be on some primeval plain, watching in the glare of lightning, to the unceasing crash of thunder, primordial beasts grazing, wandering, or in violent combat. Yet at these things too we are apt to shudder, as in his day Horace liked the Via Flaminia. Or we cry out, these things are bringing in the millennium. Perhaps they are. To really descend, not in body alone, but with the spirit receptive, into this whirl and crash, to see men running with set faces, at the continual risk of their lives, that they may link up wagons bringing screws from Birmingham, corn from Canada, pine-planks from Norway, pork from the United States. To whirl oneself in the whirl of it is to be overcome with convictions. We live in spacious times. Humanity is on the march somewhere. Tomorrow the ultimate question shall be solved, and the soul of man assuaged. Perhaps it shall. It is possible, in the contagion of these things, to see the opening up of empires wider of sway than Rome, clearer of sight than Greece, kinder of heart than Carthage, purer in joy than was to be had among the hanging gardens of Babylon. Or is this only rhetoric, or only romance? For myself, when on a train into London, I feel almost invariably a sense of some pathos and of some poetry. To the building up of this railway, of this landscape of roofs, there went so many human lives, so much of human endeavour, so many human hopes. Small houses, 
like the ranks of an infinite number of regiments caught in the act of wheeling, march out upon the open country. In the mists of the distance they climb hills, and the serrated roofs look like the jagged outlines of pine woods, with, at the top, the thin spike of a church tower. The roofs come closer together. At last, in their regular furrows, they present the appearance of fields ploughed in slate, in tiles, in lead, with the deeper channels of the streets below. Certain details strike at the eye, parallel lines of white cement set diagonally in the slate-courses well past, bewilderingly, like snow in a wind, lines of rails shoot suddenly from beneath the embankments, and, rather surprisingly, bits of black field lie in the very heart of it all, with cabbages growing, and a discoloured donkey tethered to a peg. The plain of rooftops broadens out again. Perhaps the comparative quiet fosters one's melancholy. One is behind glass as if one were gazing into the hush of a museum. One hears no street cries, no children's calls. And for me, at least, it is melancholy to think that hardly one of these lives, of all of these men, will leave any trace in the world. One sees, too, so many little bits of uncompleted life. As the train pauses one looks down into a main street, and all streets are hardly recognisable from a height. A bus is before the steps of a church. A ragged child turns a Catherine wheel in the road and holds up her hand to the passengers. Suddenly a blue policeman steps into the roadway. The train moves on. The other day, too, we were moving rather slowly. I looked down upon black and tiny yards that were like the cells in an electric battery. In one, three children were waving their hands and turning up white faces to the train. In the next, white clothes were drying. A little further on, a woman ran suddenly out of a door. She had a white apron, and her sleeves were tucked up. A man followed her hastily. He had red hair, and in his hand a long stick. We moved on, and I have not the least idea whether he were going to thrash her or whether together they were going to beat a carpet. At any rate, the evening papers reported no murder in Southwark. Incidents even so definite as these are more or less the exception, but the constant succession of much smaller happenings that one sees, and that one never sees completed, gives to looking out of train windows a touch of pathos and of dissatisfaction. It is akin to the sentiment ingrained in humanity of liking a story to have an end, and it is the note of all roads into London. To indulge in the feeling to any extent would be to add a new morbidity to life. One would, quite literally, never get any forwarder if one stayed to inquire to the end of every tragicomedy of which, on one's road, one caught a glimpse. And it is unpractical to wish that every bricklayer and every mortar-carrier who added his wall to the infinite number already existing should be able to sign his work as an artist signs his picture. But that, too, is a universal sentiment, and a note of all roads into London, a note of London itself. It arises out of the innate altruism that there is in us all, or out of the universal desire to know. If one stayed to think, one would like to know what kind of poor wretch set the fifth stone in the third tier of the Pyramid of Cheops. End of chapter 2
End of section 5